this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath the 28th un climate conference known as cop 28 is starting today in dubai and will go on till december 12th delegates from almost 200 countries as well as climate scientists business leaders and other stakeholders will take part in this meeting it is clear now that the world is not on course to meet the targets set in the paris agreement which was to keep the global rise in temperatures within the 1.5 degree celsius limit there are already indications that if we continue with our current climate policies the earth would be warmer by 3 degree celsius by 2100 something that would make severe climate events a regular occurrence so what is top of the agenda at cop 28 a loss and damage fund established at cop 27 last year is lying empty will there be any progress in getting it funded and is there any developing consensus on what climate accountability might begin to look like we bring you a detailed preview of the dubai climate conference in this episode of in focus and we have with us ulka kelka executive director climate at world resources institute india ulka thank you so much for joining us thank you so much very happy to be with you today ulka to start with i was wondering if you can give us a brief overview of the core items or issues on the agenda of this year's summit Sure um as you know the cop is a conference that brings together all countries of the world every year so this is under the united nations setup and whether you are the biggest economy the biggest emitter in the world or you are the small island that is at risk to climate change sea level rise even though you didn't cause those emissions you're treated equally on par it is one country one vote and every voice counts so the cop is actually a very unique system that uh, that happens of course there is in the public mind a sort of fatigue this is the 28th cop what has been achieved what new will happen this year so uh, i think there are two or three things that make this cop very distinctive uh, and which is reflected on the agenda as well first of all uh, this is the first cop that is going to happen after the global stock take report of the paris agreement has come out uh now when the paris agreement was designed it was always meant to be a step by step process that is all countries take some action to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and to adapt to the impacts of climate change and to provide finance for climate action then every 5 years or so they take stock of what has been the collective progress towards the goals of the paris agreement and once we take stock we try to see what more we can do so that countries can go back and revise their their commitments and their actions so this is the first time that the cop that all the countries will be meeting together under one roof to actually say what more can be done and to perhaps come up with a with a new timeline for submitting these short term actions um I think that is one major uh, change even though it doesn't really tell us anything that we don't know as you said before in your opening remarks um climate action is not on par it's not on track but but this is the most powerful convening of all global world leaders um where they can say what what more they can do 
recognizing what this global stock tick report tells us. I think the second unique or rather distinctive feature of this COP is that it is happening in an oil and, oil and gas producing um, region. Uh, one of the major economies. And it really brings to fore the challenge of taking action on climate change, which is that it's not just an environmental issue, it's an economic issue. And it is not just uh, big companies who, you know, who have a vested interest in, in maintaining their, uh, their uh, dependence on fossil fuels, but also it's a matter of, uh, of the livelihoods of workers, of communities, of entire economies. So any action that is taken to phase down or fossil fuels, which is really what is going to be on the agenda, has to be an action that takes into account the economic diversification that is needed. We know that climate action can create new green jobs. It can be, for example, electric mobility or renewable energy, but it has to be done in a way that takes along people as well, and um, and so that any action for the planet is also good for, for people. In all of this, uh, and this comes to the third issue, the big thing is going to be about finance. For the last few years, we've been hearing about this $100 billion goal that developed countries have not been meeting. And it has led to a lot of um, lot of um, resentment, a lot of lack of trust, because, again, the design of the Paris Agreement or of any climate action uh, under the UNFCCC was always that those uh, more advanced economies that have polluted more should provide more finance for action to happen in developing countries. And that has not been happening. But just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, a new report has come out which says that the $100 billion climate goal is um, estimated to have been met in 2022, uh, two years behind schedule. And of course, these are estimates. These are not, um, uh, these are not confirmed. Uh, and also there are lot of imbalances in the way in which the climate finance is produced. Uh, it's mostly in the form of loans rather than grants. It's more for uh, commercial projects around uh, renewable energy rather than for social projects around agriculture or health or water. Uh, and that is really going to be the backdrop of new negotiations at this COP on a new goal for collective climate finance. Uh, going beyond that $100 billion to maybe something like $500 billion over the next few years and making sure that at least half of that goes towards adaptation and resilience building activities. And perhaps the last thing that I'll mention is what you also talked about, which is the loss and damage fund. It was a big victory to have a loss and damage fund created, an acknowledgement that uh, the most vulnerable countries and communities are already facing climate impacts due to disasters that have become more frequent or more severe due to the historical emissions of, of industrialized countries over the hundreds of years. Uh, now the important thing is to operationalize it. And over this last one year, between COP27 and COP28, the Transitional Committee of the Loss and Damage Fund has met five times and has come up with an interim uh, procedure, an interim process, uh, on how to uh, how to set it up, how to get funding, and how to uh, how to disperse the funding. So that will also be something that will be really uh, people will be watching out for. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Ulka, for uh, really a comprehensive uh, overview. When you flagged four basic uh, items, one of course is global stock taking uh, report. Is the report already out and it's going to be discussed, or will it be unveiled uh, at the summit? The report is very much out. Um, uh, it came out earlier this month and there have already been a lot of discussions around it. Um, I think what uh, what happens is really two types of reactions to it. 
what does the report say exactly i mean in in a nutshell uh basically that the progress of climate action is uh, is the pace of climate action is not sufficient at the rate at which we are going the 1.5 degrees celsius um warming um, goal of the paris agreement is very unlikely to be to be met uh, we are very likely to go beyond it and uh, and it also tells us how the pace of climate action needs to increase in various sectors so i'll give you a couple of examples in the renewable energy for example we have been seeing a lot of um, a lot of developments happening uh, the price of solar for example has become cheaper by 85% in the last 10 years uh, the price of wind power has fallen by 55% in the last 10 years and this has led to rapid installation of solar and wind um, and other forms of renewable energy across all all countries um, but even so there is still need to keep up this pace of progress and to accelerate it so um in the g20 meetings that india had chaired and which concluded recently one of the uh, targets that was adopted was that the capacity of renewable energy should triple by 2030 and this is something that uh, that is a good response to the global stock take it is something that will be perhaps formally adopted in this cop by all countries uh in the electric mobility sector as well the pace of progress has been much more rapid than what experts could have predicted a few years ago but there are other sectors uh that that connect to this so even if you have more electric vehicles the need is for those electric vehicles to be running on clean energy uh renewable electricity otherwise all you end up doing is displacing emissions from the power plants uh you know to the vehicles so uh, th- that is the need for uh conjoined action in different sectors and then there are some sectors like the industry sector particularly steel where the pace of progress is absolutely insufficient so for example the ghg intensity of steel manufacturing has actually increased somewhat over the last few years because it is using more electricity and that electricity is still dominantly coal uh, so these are the global trends but i think what will happen in this particular cop is that countries will come up with um, with a revised um, timeline of submitting their nationally determined contributions as they are called namely their uh, their own commitments and targets uh, india for example has targets which go until 2030 perhaps we will be thinking beyond 2030 um, and thinking about how to align it faster with the long term goal of the paris agreement right so you mentioned about uh... tripling the renewable renewable energy um, output by 2030 now i was just wondering uh, on the one hand there is this entire debate about uh, phasing down the use of fossil fuels and then on the other hand there is this uh, drive to increase uh, renewable energy capacity now some some would argue that the shift the, the, the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy will not happen fast enough unless there is an incentive and by incentive they they mean uh, things like eliminating tax cuts and subsidies for industries uh, which are dependent on fossil fuels because there is always going to be a price differential between fossil fuels and renewables so uh, w- what are your views on this uh, particular uh, debate do you think subsidies and tax cuts for fossil fuels should go as a part of the phasing down process rather than wait for renewable energy to catch up so to speak 
Thanks, Sampath. I think that's a very um, fundamental question that you've asked. It is really what lies at the heart of all of these discussions. And I think what's important to remember is that there are different types of uses of fossil fuels and different types of subsidies. So, for example, some argue that when the electricity grid was first set up, say in the United States, um, that was also a form of public uh, policy support for the electricity industry. So there can be that kind of very high level subsidy that is given to large companies uh, who are producing um, fossil, who are either extracting, you know, like coal mining or oil refineries or, or they're the producing electricity. But there are also the kinds of subsidies that are given to the poorest uh, and uh, those those people, uh, those users of energy who actually lack access to reliable energy, reliable clean energy, and they need support because their purchasing power is inadequate. So, for example, in India, the whole scheme of getting people to shift away from biomass, which has led to a lot of indoor air pollution issues and health issues for women, towards uh, LPG, which is a cleaner form of, of cooking fuel. Uh, so I would distinguish between these two types of subsidies. And I think this is beginning to be understood that you can't just lump all types of fossil fuel subsidies together because they have different purposes uh, and they're being applied in different contexts. Also, I think one of the important things to remember is that there are ways in which the subsidies can be recycled back to those communities who need it the most. So uh, Canada, for example, tried this out. They put a carbon tax that actually affected all um, heating and uh, energy production. And then they tried to send that money back towards those communities who uh, are low-income communities. And they found that on balance, the communities were actually better off than they were before. The compromise that has been made in, in a lot of these uh, discussions so far is the use of the word unabated. By unabated, uh, typically what is meant is that the that you can continue to have um, fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuel-based production or electricity to be supported through public money, like through subsidies, provided that there are efforts to capture the emissions from from this production. So um, the carbon can be captured at the at the chimney. Or, uh, for example, if you have um, oil and gas production, a lot of the um, lot of the gas is just vented and flared. This needs to be stopped, and only then uh, some of these larger companies would be eligible for fossil fuel subsidies. Sorry to interrupt here. I just since you spoke about carbon capture, I thought this is a good uh, point to sort of get into that a little bit. When I just uh, saw this report yesterday, which said that the International Energy Agency has essentially called carbon capture uh, a kind of an illusion. It's it's very skeptical about whether it can be scaled up, you know, whether it can be scaled up uh, to tackle climate change, you know. So do you, what do you think of this whole, How do, what exactly is carbon capture and why does the International Energy Agency think it's basically it's rubbishing it, saying that it's an illusion, not really uh, a solution? So it's, um, you know, it's always better to solve a problem at source rather than to then try to clean it up afterwards. That is always more expensive, more, um, you know, subject to many other kinds of inadvertent consequences. So, of course, the first preference is to try to reduce um, the emissions at the source. 
uh, it's the same as you would see in air quality also in our urban air pollution it's better to try to uh, find ways to mitigate the emissions rather than to you know use something like a smog tower or something that tries to clean up the 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 pollution or even say a filter which is only protecting yourself but is not protecting others who are uh, you know more exposed so uh, but i'd like to uh, point out that there are two kinds of technologies uh, carbon capture usually refers to um, to extracting the emissions either through a chemical process or through a man- physical filter uh, from the you know say this stack of you know these chimneys that you see of power plants and either use it in another industry so for example there was actually a plant in tuticorin in india which tried to use the co2 emissions from a power plant and use them in a soda ash plant so the input that that industry would have used uh, in the form of carbon dioxide came from the exhaust of a power plant so this is what is called carbon capture and utilization and it's it's something worth thinking about whether there can be more of such examples uh carbon capture and storage means you try to actually pack away the co2 in say disused oil oil um, fields or, or coal mines you actually try to bury it under the ground there have in fact even been some attempts to bury it in the oceans now all of this is as you can imagine um it could have inadvertent consequences right we don't quite know how this will play out what happens if there are leakages so it's not a permanent solution really but the second kind of uh, big technology that is being talked about which is even more um, uh, kind of futuristic is direct air capture which is saying that you try to scrub out the co2 from the atmosphere and there have been a lot of um, big um, you know te- uh, technological bets being placed on it and right now the issue is that all of these projects are uh, they've been pilot projects for a while they're currently expensive they may become cheaper over time over the next couple of decades or so and if they do it's worth considering them in the entire arsenal of our weapons in the fight against climate change but at the moment uh, there are uh, it's important to remember that a lot of the fossil fuel emissions that are being projected to increase in the next decade or so are going to come from power plants that have not even been built yet they don't actually exist so that's why the question that you asked about subsidies becomes important that is it possible to direct that funding that finance towards setting up new renewable energy plants rather than new fossil fuel plants uh now here the issue is is not as simple as as renewable energy costs falling and money going there uh there is a need to also set up storage of renewable energy because it's generated only when the sun shines and the wind blows and this is not just daily storage but also storage over the period of months for example when there are monsoons in india it may be that conditions are cloudy and solar energy output is less or it may be that wind wind speeds change over time um so storage is very important and the second and right now the storage is being done in the form of batteries but there are other ways as well and the second is to strengthen the grid in a way that different types of renewable energy which are coming on and coming off can be can be flexibly included in the grid and can be sent to where the electricity is needed the most so there's a lot of public infrastructure that will need to be built here and that's why uh, a lot of these discussions are are being thought of very seriously right now um and one way in fact uh, that the, that in india we're doing it is building in the cost of the storage into any tenders for new renewable energy power plants but uh, but i think it's a yeah all of these are interconnected issues 
Right. The other uh, big topic uh, which you referred to earlier, Ulka, is uh, climate finance. Now, I was just wondering, by climate finance, uh, do we mean the same as the loss and damage fund? Because it is also a financing uh, issue. Or do they uh, mean two different things when we talk about climate finance and loss and damage fund uh, as an issue? Because you had two, they had them in two different points uh, in your initial overview. Right. So you're right. These are all connected issues. When we talk about climate finance as a whole, we are talking about two types of um, activities that need to be funded. One is activities that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and the other is activities that build resilience to the impacts of climate change. The loss and damage funding was actually not seen as part of climate finance till only last year. It was, uh, it was because the countries that were asking for loss and damage finance were not talking about either mitigating greenhouse gas emissions all of building resilience to future impacts of climate change. They were saying that countries and people are already facing the impacts of disasters that are happening today. And this is because of emissions from, you know, the United States or the United Kingdom or Europe from a hundred years ago. Uh, this was actually a major sticking point in the negotiations because it becomes almost a kind of, you could think of it almost as compensation or reparations. And this was not something that was acceptable for many years to, to developed countries, to the industrialized nations. So uh, you could think of it almost as a third form of, of climate finance that is now being talked about. Um, but when we uh, talk about the $100 billion climate finance goal, the process for that is more that, um, you know, that there's a pool of resources that uh, developed countries put in and that developing countries get to apply for in the form of projects. With the loss and damage fund, it's likely to be a slightly different um, process that is, going to, uh, that is going to get created. And that is something that will play out over the next couple of years. Uh, so in all of this, it becomes very important to ask these kinds of questions. What do we mean by climate finance? There have been some reports by by a uh, couple of watchdogs uh, which have pointed out that even if you have a railways project, for example, it can be reported as climate finance. Now, while that is good, there's need for transparency on what is counted as climate finance and what is not. Otherwise, all kinds of actions could get uh, reported under climate finance. Um, so, uh, so one of the uh, kind of recent developments that is happening is greater calls for more finance to be uh, to come in, uh, because multilateral development banks like the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank need to reform their processes in order to be able to release more funding into into this. Uh, because many of the um, many of the developed countries are saying that we have reached the limit of how much climate finance we can give. We can't give more. We are fighting wars. Our economies are in bad shape, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So please don't expect more from us. Um, while this is something that we need to fight against, uh, it's also very important for to look for new sources of of potentially climate finance. The multilateral development bank reform is one. Another source that is going to be talked about a lot at this COP is can you put uh, can you increase the tax on the windfall gains of fossil fuel companies can you put a shipping tax can you put an aviation tax say for business class travel many of these types of actions are going to be uh, talked about and it's not clear whether the cop can actually mandate this but the cop can certainly give signals that that compel these industries to to adopt such a tax 
Right. I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly uh, complicated uh, set of questions with different answers, which I think will be discussed in detail at this conference. And one, another big uh, debating point, Ulka, which, uh, which has sort of come to the headlines the last past week or so, not longer, uh, is the fact that this particular conference is being held in a country which is a sort of a fossil fuel superpower, so to speak. And there are two kinds of views on this. One, of course, is that uh, it's it's highly hypocritical to be having uh, a climate change conference and a climate mitigation conference in uh, in the hub or the global hotspot of fossil fuel production, so to speak. And uh, it's not going to really help to have them helping, helming uh, the debate uh, for this, where you're trying to get out of fossil fuel dependency. And on the other side, you have people saying that you can't really make much progress unless you include uh, the fossil fuel producing countries and stakeholders in the conversation because they have to have a, a constructive role to play as well. Without their cooperation, it is difficult to make progress. So how do you see uh, this dimension of the entire uh, summit? No, I think you have laid out the two perspectives very well. It's exactly the way you put it. Uh, I think a major reason for the conflict of interest is that the uh, the the leader of the COP the uh, continued to retain both his roles right as the, as the person chairing the negotiations at the COP as well as the um, uh, sort of head of a major uh, fossil fuel company I think if for the for at least for this period if uh, if uh, you know one of the two roles could have been relinquished I think these issues of conflict of interest would uh, would not be that obvious um, I think this is very important because um, for example. Even the agenda adoption that happens at the beginning of each COP is very much led by the host country. Um, a lot of the deadlocks uh, have to be broken through informal discussions uh, that happen in smaller groups, um, which are often steered by the host country. And unless these are done with full transparency, there can be questions about whether the final consensus was indeed uh, something that everybody was on board with. Now, of course, everyone will never be happy in this kind of, uh, you know, in a process where the consensus means that not one person can, not one country can, uh, can, Kind of choose to you know refrain from uh, from voting or so it it is difficult, uh, but that's exactly why the host country's um, role becomes even more critical. So trust and and faith in the process become a very important part of this whole thing. Uh, but I think there are some benefits as well uh, as you as you yourself mentioned. Um, one of the big new developments that is going to happen at this COP is a global methane pledge. And um, this is particularly important for countries which are major oil and gas producers, because methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And it's actually something which, if it is reduced in the short term, can have uh, major implications for that 1.5 degrees Celsius target. Uh, CO2 is something which is far more integrated into our daily lives into the way we consume basic forms of electricity. Isn't isn't agriculture and livestock a bigger producer of methane than oil and gas? Or? No, actually, uh, a lot of the methane from oil and gas is just wasteful because it is uh, it is used, for example, to burn gas. You know, at the at the refinery stage, um, at the extraction stage, uh, it's just gas venting and flaring that happens. Uh, this has no economic value at all. Also, there are a lot of leakages in pipelines, 
uh, again these are just um, uh, this is a loss of revenue to the to the producer so there are very what are called low hanging fruits if you are able to uh, plug these leakages in the pipelines by upgrading the infrastructure or if you are able to have some kind of system by which this wasteful uh, leakage of methane is is plugged then um, then it actually helps very much in terms of the environment but also makes economic sense um on the food side i would like to actually again distinguish between emissions that come from say paddy cultivation or from say cattle um, uh, digestion and talk about one win win opportunity for india which is that of reducing food loss and waste uh, a lot of uh, food gets wasted either at the harvest stage because farmers lack access to cold chain infrastructure transport infrastructure to transport their produce to markets when the price is right or it gets wasted in our homes in hotels in restaurants simply because we're not planning well for the use of this food um there was one study that was done in the city of bangalore where i'm located uh, which found that in wedding halls in a year 1000 tons of food is wasted simply from these big banquets that are thrown um i think when this food goes into landfills it can lead to methane reduction uh, methane emissions and this is definitely something that would be a win win opportunity for us uh in terms of reducing methane emissions but also more importantly uh making sure that food security and nutritional requirements are are safeguarded right i mean speaking of uh, win win for india ulka one last question before we uh, wrap up as we are running out of time so what what are india's objectives at this summit like i mean how have we been doing with regard to our national targets and what are we looking to get from this edition of uh, cop i think uh, india can be very confident that it has been meeting its targets and in fact overachieving on them if you look back at the track record um uh the first set of nationally determined contributions said for example that we would meet 40% of our um, of our electricity capacity from renewable energy rather from non fossil sources uh by 2030 and we we actually got to that i think 8 years ahead of schedule after that in cop 26 in glasgow 2 years ago the prime minister announced an upgrading of that target to 50% uh i think we have all all trends show that we are on target for that and again more likely to to overachieve uh india has also played a very important role in this g20 uh process all of last year for example the tripling of renewable energy um, there have also been other commitments made on energy efficiency improvements on green hydrogen all of which are likely to have very far reaching consequences and are likely to be taken up by the global community um i think for india there are two or three uh, aspects that that they will be looking for uh, from this cop one is really to highlight the uh, you know the needs of developing countries of the global south in terms of the loss and damage fund as well uh, i think to express solidarity with those countries that are most directly affected uh, the second is to try to double down on the on the demands for on the calls for more climate finance to be provided over the next few years so the negotiations that are starting on the new goal on collective um, on climate finance um, that is something that india will be definitely lending its voice to uh, because a lot of these actions just need timely finance to flow um uh, and there are many opportunities that can be taken up uh particularly on things like electric mobility green hydrogen renewable energy all of these uh sectors where india is looking at these sectors as a way of creating new green jobs as well 
the third is i think on the fossil fuel side um i think what india would like to convey or communicate is the fact that no one size fits all uh every country context is different um uh you know we spoke a lot about subsidies and various other things uh for india as a whole the important thing is to make sure that energy access is goes to those people who need it the most and um, in a reliable way and here what happens is that in addition to the large kind of renewable energy projects that we that we hear about you know massive solar solar parks and so on there's also a need for decentralized renewable energy so small rural hospitals rural schools um micro small and medium enterprises all of these are a major part of our economy and our society and they also need to benefit from from this shift or this transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy we can't make this transition in a way that uh, that the poorest and the most marginalized are hit the hardest so uh, so india will have to devise its own approach on how to meet its its uh, global targets or its contribution um, to the uh, to the global stock take going forward and i think if we are able to communicate some of this and build a a kind of um, um an atmosphere of trust and solidarity i think uh, that is something that that will be important at this cop a lot of the uh, actions that we spoke about do get implemented by the private sector uh but there are many many other kinds of um, supporting actions which may not be thought of as climate actions but a lot of social uh, developmental actions which really fall under the purview of the government itself so uh, so this is very much uh, something that uh, this cop uh, will will be communicating right right thank you so much olka i think you you sort of laid it out really beautifully here and i think you are absolutely right that india does have a big role to play in especially as, as as sort of upholding the voice of the global south the entire debate when you do you did mention earlier that while this is at heart an environmental issue climate change is an environmental issue but it is also an economic issue which is of course very well recognized by the fossil fuel industry uh, but it's also an economic issue for everyone across the board and at the end of the day it is also a social issue and a livelihood issue especially in the global south which is where i think india can uh, lead the way show uh, innovation in ensuring as you said green jobs ensuring energy access and so on i think all these are interlinked factors i think it will be a great uh, to look forward to the debates and the discussions and what comes out of uh, this edition of uh, cop thank you so much once again it was an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you thank you very much In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.